0: Let us pray. Oh, Father God. Lord, you are still in control. Lord, you are still on your throne. And Lord, as Pastor Mark spoke this morning, you are so mighty, so glorious, so awesome, so worthy of our praise. And Lord, who are we? Lord, we do not deserve to be here, to be able to dwell in the house of the Lord. Lord, we are unworthy of your affection, your grace, and your mercy. But Lord, yet you love us anyways. Lord, I pray this morning that I may be used as a channel of your undefiled grace. Lord, that the sermon this morning would be glorifying to you. It would be edifying to the saints. Lord, that we all here today would be refreshed, convicted and comforted by the truth of your word. Lord, thank you so much for calling us to yourself, for bringing each individual person here this morning. Lord, may you increase, may we decrease. May this be about you and from you and through you and for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Allow me, if I may, to be a little vulnerable with you guys this morning. It was not my plan nor my intention. These last two weeks, Have been some of the hardest weeks of my life and I would say that it is self inflicted sin induced wounds that I have felt just the weight of my iniquity the weight of my sin causing many sleepless nights just unrest this morning which is so rare for me. I woke up at 4.51 and could not fall back asleep. Got here this morning at 7. Just mulling over the sermon my life again and again. I say that the last two weeks have been incredibly hard and they have. I've spent more time weeping, truly weeping over my sin in these last two weeks than probably ever. You see, as an interim pastor prior to this and then now serving as an intern pastor, associate pastor, there's a lot of weight that comes with that. There's a huge platform that you are to stand on And a big spotlight on you always. People look up to you. You are to give wise and godly and biblical counsel. And you are far more than any other person to be above reproof. A pastor's job is to care for the souls of the individuals in his congregation. And I think oftentimes we can care so much about your guys' souls, the souls of the lost in the world, the souls of our family members, that we forget to take care of our own, that we neglect the care of our own, that we study the word of God so that we can then pass on the knowledge that we have learned rather than truly resting and meditating in the goodness of God. I think we can be blinded by our sin, our shame. You know, when King David commits adultery and murders Uriah, he kind of just blocks that out of him. And Nathan comes to him, right, and gives him like this parable of this immoral dude who steals this person's livestock to give to somebody else. And Nathan says, what do you think we should do about this man? And David says, death. And Nathan says, this man is you. Pastors, myself included, we can stand up here and preach to the congregation messages of life, messages that should convict and edify, all while not really being true to it ourselves. And as I was able to truly just weep over my sin these last two weeks and reflect on my life and all the ways that I've fallen short, even in my time here at Grace Church. I read Psalm chapter 38, verses 1 through 8, and it was so real. I'm going to read it. It's not going to be up there. It's like I said this morning. And David says, O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath and chasten me not in your burning anger. You see, when, when David was rebuked by Nathan, David knew that he was worthy of death. That's what he, by his own profession, declared to Nathan. That man should die. We as Christians plead to God continually for grace and mercy in different instances in our life. All while being fully aware of the fact that it's God's mercy and grace that doesn't condemn us to hell already. The fact that we can sit here this morning and have the freedom to worship this awesome God that we just got to sing about is tremendous grace. And mercy. David continues and he says, For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. I can relate. And I know that truthfully, every single person in this congregation is truly born again can relate as well. You see in 1 Peter chapter 4 again not on the screen but in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 we're reminded of what I would say such a beautiful truth for the life of every believer. Peter says therefore since Christ has suffered in the flesh arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Peter is telling the people that he is writing to Do you see what the Lord has done on your behalf? He went to the cross for you so that now you could die to yourself, that you could die to your desires, that you could stop living like a Gentile, going after the cares of the world, but that you now in this day would live for the will of God. I think we as a people, myself included, we as a church people, we as a Christian people, far too often live for ourselves. We profess the name of Christ and we come here together on Sundays and then we live the other six and a half days wholly and fully for ourselves and from ourselves. You see in, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. As R.C. Sproul so brilliant, brilliantly points out, God does not promise to fill, to satisfy those who are not hungry for Righteousness. He only promises to satisfy those who are hungry. I think often, as a Christian people, we are not hungry enough. We don't hunger enough for the bread that doesn't perish. Do we long for God like our bodies long for food? Can we respond like Jesus did in John chapter 4? When the disciples come up to him and say, Lord, we need to go eat. Have you eaten? And, and Jesus responds to them, food, my food is doing the will of the Father. What do you mean food? What are you talking about this physical thing? My, my food, my spiritual filling is going out and doing the will of the Father. Can we honestly and truthfully say that? Can we relate to Jesus's profession? One more passage I'd like you to go to before really jumping into the sermon. In Romans 11, chapter 33 through 36, just real quick, Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor, who who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, in these four verses, we get to see the splendor and the majesty of God in an unreal way. Just reading it, you can hear the excitement of Paul just writing These brilliant words of the excellencies of God. How inexhaustible he is. And what's the conclusion to this reality of how amazing God is? Paul tells us in the next two verses in chapter 12, he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, because God is so unsearchable, because God is so inexhaustible, because God has literally done every single thing for his glory, that I saw from him and through him and to him. Because of this reality, Paul says, presents your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. The conclusion, Paul says, is to lay our lives down to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we know what the will of God is. As we grow closer to the Lord, He continues to change our desires more and more and more until they align with His. However, I don't believe anyone here, myself included, truly desires God as we should in fact we know this to be true this isn't just me wrongfully accusing anybody of anything but we know this to be true because Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love God with all of our heart our soul and our mind which is an impossible task it is one that we continually fail at And even though we think we are loving him enough, we simply cannot ever love God the way he requires us to love him. Thank God for his grace because we desperately need it. But that's the reality. However, none of us should live, though, in a state of complacency in our knowledge of God and in our relationship with him. None of us should just be okay with coasting through the Christian life with getting up and just doing the same thing over and over and over again like Groundhog Day. We should continually be striving to know God more, to love Him more, for Him to become more and more of our desire, so that we desire nothing other than Him. Pastor Mark spoke last week about Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, and how our love for God is to grow through knowledge of Him, Thus then, a lack of knowledge makes us unable to love him in his desirable way. In fact, this relational knowledge of God is so important that God tells the people in Isaiah chapter 5 that he is going to destroy them for a lack of knowledge. And on Judgment Day, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 that there is going to be tons of of people who genuinely thought that they were saved because of their religiosity. Yet he is going to say to them, depart from me for I never knew you. Therefore, how can one be sure that their faith is saving faith? In other words, how can one ensure that they really know God I believe that the most clear answer that scripture gives for this question is found in Psalm 73:25 but that this is often misused watered down and incorrectly applied to our lives as we profess to agree with this truth yet we don't actually mean it you see the psalmist literally says in verse 25 Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. Now that is an incredibly bold two sentences. And when we read this text, we probably applaud the psalmist for such great faith. But can we truly echo these sentences and mean them like Asaph does? You see, all these great men of faith that we read about in Scripture, Enoch, who walked with God, Abraham, who was a friend of God, Moses, who was called the most humble man to ever live, David, a man after God's own heart, John the Baptist, by Jesus' own words, the greatest man to ever live. None of these people were written about nor did they write amazing statements like this one found in verse 25 to show us what great faith they had, but instead to show us what we ought to be. You see, this reality is why Paul literally tells the church in Corinth, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, every single one of us truly born-again followers of Christ should be able to say those same words, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We should be able to say those same words to those around us. And therefore, we should be able also to echo the cry from the psalmist's heart in Psalm 73, 25, that God is truly all that we desire. Therefore, Let's break this verse down, jump into some context, talk about our disposition, gather more context, and finally elaborate on how desiring God is played out in our lives. First off, the psalmist writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? Do we understand the weight of this rhetorical question? He literally is saying that God, Despite the perfection and the beauty of heaven and the angels, is all that he desires. You might think, duh. But if you read Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, heaven sounds pretty awesome. There's no more sin. There's no more suffering. There's no more pain. All things are made new. There's beautiful trees with an overabundance of fruit. There's flowing rivers. There's singing, there's angels, etc. Heaven sounds amazing. In fact, the other day, Mark, Kevin, and I were golfing. And Mark and Kevin were talking about how beautiful the golf courses are going to be in heaven. And how we will be able to shoot hole in ones every single hole. And it will never get boring. And it will never be less joyful. That we will continually be satisfied and the fact that we can shoot hole-in-ones every single time on these beautiful, well-maintained courses. Now, will there be golf in heaven? Who knows? But the idea that I'm trying to get across is that heaven is going to be so amazing, yet God himself is even so much more amazing than the perfection of heaven, that all we really need is him okay. as kids we probably all grew up with this idea of having with this idea of heaven as us just bowing down before a god and we probably thought to ourselves that sounds lame that sounds boring actually i would much rather live on this side of eternity where i get to do all these things have a lot of hobbies spend a lot of money eat a lot of nice food than sit in heaven for all of eternity, and just worship God? However, that actually is amazing. If that were to be the case, which I'm not arguing for, if all of eternity was truly just us laying prostrate before the Lord, worshiping, that would be amazing. This reality of worshiping God forevermore and spending eternity in heaven is what drove the Old Testament saints like Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, who in Hebrews 11 tell us that they died in faith due to their desire for a better country, a heavenly one. It's the same desire that drove the New Testament saints like Paul, who literally said that to die is gain so that he could be with Christ. It's the same desire that drove the fathers in church history, like Jonathan Edwards, who wrote, to go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. And even for the men and women in Afghanistan right now, as I read an article about how the church is growing exponentially, as people see the boldness of the persecuted church and their excitement to be with their maker. And therefore this reality of spending eternity with God our Father, God our maker, should be driving us as well. So much so that we can cry out with the psalmist in, verse 20, in chapter 27 verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. He says, one thing that I ask is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Right, it reminds me of Moses in Exodus, where God tells Moses, Moses, because of your faithfulness, basically I will give you whatever you want. And Moses responds and he says, show me your glory. We, as a people, settle for far less than what these men who have gone before us desired. You see, David here in 27, Asaph in 73, Moses in Exodus, recognize that the most glorious thing ever would be to simply sit in the presence of God and worship him. There is simply nothing better. Secondly, the psalmist in chapter 73, verse 25 writes, And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Do we understand the weight of what is being said here? Just as we don't need anything else in heaven other than the presence of God, we shouldn't desire anything on earth other than God. Now before you ask, what about my wife, my kids, my house, etc., let us understand that God is the good gift giver, and he he gives us all things to enjoy, and therefore it is not sinful nor wrong to desire these things, but we must recognize that in order to glorify Christ, which is the chief end of our existence, then we must be holy and fully Satisfied in him as he is our prize, our treasure, and our joy. After all, Ecclesiastes tells us that pleasure, money, relationships, time, working, and literally anything and everything else is all vanity and striving after wind. And therefore the conclusion That Solomon writes at the end of his book, 12 chapters of just talking about the vanity of this world and how it's all fleeting. His conclusion is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this world is fading away, because this world and everything in it is vain in and of itself, fear God and keep his commandments. We are to fear, revere, and desire God. And obey him. However, our disposition is to do the opposite. Look at the context of what is happening before Asaph makes this glorious declaration that he desires God above all else. You see, in verses 3 through 5, he literally says, For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Asaph, a godly man, is looking at all these successful people in the world, and he's envious of them. If we're being honest for ourselves, we would understand that this is very relatable. Who wouldn't want as much money as Jeff Bezos? Who wouldn't want to be as smart as Elon Musk? Who wouldn't want to be as famous as Oprah or to live as lavish a lifestyle as the Kardashians? Now, maybe some of those things don't appeal to you, and some more than others. The fact of the matter is, is that we often look at the world and we envy what they have. And for some of us, that envy turns into us simply chasing after and getting those pleasures, getting what our heart desires. We like nice things. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us that it is so easy To worship the creature, meaning any created thing, rather than to worship the creator, God. If our desire is found in anything other than God, let us repent of that. Let us be thankful for God creating it, but let us use it for his glory. However, again, none of us here would probably admit to loving the world. We know that James 4.4 tells us that friendship with the world makes us an enemy of God. Nobody is going to stand up here and raise their arm and say, I'm a friend of the world, and I'm happy to be an enemy of God. We wouldn't say that. And in 1 John 2.15, we see the truth that we are not to love the world, nor the things in the world. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We read these things as Christians, and we immediately don't look inward and we look outward and we look at the world and we look at all the pagans and we say, man, those guys are the ones guilty of loving the world, but not me. I'm a Christian. I'm born again. And therefore we take all of our sinful pleasures and desires as Christians that we had before coming to faith in Christ and we just try and Christianize them. We just try and do the same things that we were doing as pagans and just put the little Christian bumper sticker on it, put the little Christian tag on it. And say, well, now because I'm in Christ, I can do this, and it's fine. God gave me the freedom to do it. Or God wants me to have this. You see, though, it is possible for us to be religious. It's possible for us to be Christians and have a money problem. It's possible for us to be poor and have a money problem. You see, the rich young ruler that's talked about in the Gospels, that dude was morally a good person. That dude, in fact, that dude was probably morally a better person than all of us here. I mean, Jesus, he says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, obey these commandments. Which ones? And Jesus lists them, and he says, all of those I have kept. When I read those commandments that Jesus says, I'm like, guilty, 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 guilty. And it's not until, the rich young, and not until Jesus tells the rich young ruler to sell all of his possessions and give to the poor, where he's like, whoa, 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 too much for me. You see, did you know that although God gives us all things to enjoy, he tells us in Ephesians 4.28 that the purpose of our labor, the purpose of our labor is so that we can provide for those in need. All throughout the Psalms, you'll hear the psalmist cry out, Lord, bless us so that we can be a blessing to the nations. We read in Acts that it's better to give than to receive. We as Christians, are we building our kingdom are we building God's kingdom? Are we hoarding what he has given us for us to selfishly spend and use on ourselves? Or are we giving what he has given to us to those around us? Are we truly sharing with those in need? You see, in order for us to reflect on what we desire, I'd like to read a verse to you then follow it up with a few questions. In Romans 8, verse 6, Paul says, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. John Owen, one of my favorite writers and favorite men all throughout church history, he was a Puritan. John Owen wrote an entire book on this verse that I just read. For the mindset on the flesh is death, and the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. It's like 286 pages on this verse and what it means. It was by far the most convicting and powerful book that I have ever read in my life. Because I'm reading this, and I'm reading John Owen pick apart what a mindset on the flesh looks like. And I'm like, man, am I saved? Is anyone saved? Can anybody be saved? Because he brought up amazing realities of what the mindset on the flesh looks like and how the result Of that is death. What is our mind set on? Is it set on the things of God like we are told to? Colossians 3 verses 1 through 2 tells us, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, in other words, if you are a Christian, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. If we are Christians, Paul says, keep seeking the things above. Why does he say keep seeking? Because if we are Christians, God has already given us new desires. So immediately when he changes our heart, when he changes our will, when he puts his spirit within us, he immediately causes us to seek after him. We were once dead in our transgressions and sins, not seeking him, but seeking after the world. And now God has caused us to seek after him. So Paul says, keep seeking. Because we, as a Christian people, tend to just coast in this life. We tend to stop seeking the things above. Is our mind on the flesh the worth in this world? Here's a question. Here's a couple questions from this book that I was reading by William Greenhill, Stop Loving the World. He says, am I more concerned about the things of the world than I am for heaven and spiritual things? Does the world push aside and cut out the things that are of God? Think about it. We will do whatever it takes to get to work, to make a few bucks to work out. Every single person has priorities, and when when conflicts come into life, we will make certain that we don't miss out on certain things. It's just how it is. We prioritize different things over others. I mean, we can talk about going to church. We can talk about reading the Word. We can talk about spending time in prayer. The fact of the matter is that we don't often prioritize these things. Right? Long ago, and maybe they're still active, but Klondike had a commercial that said, what would you do for a Klondike bar? and how cheesy and funny these commercials were, they really hit at the heart of us and what we would do for worldly possessions. I remember one Klondike commercial specifically where this husband is sitting on the couch and his wife comes in and she just starts talking about her day and the question pops up, what would you do for a Klondike bar? Would you sit and listen, actually listen to your wife for five seconds for a Klondike bar? And his wife starts talking, and he turns around, and he looks at her, like veins bulging out of his head. He is concentrating so much. And after that five seconds is up, confetti falls from from the ceiling, balloons fall from the ceiling, and he is cheering and parading because he listened to his wife for five seconds, and he won that Klondike bar. The point of the commercial was it was so ridiculous for him to listen to his wife because he didn't want to. What would he do for a Klondike bar? What do we often do for those things that are important to us? Another illustration, my sister Grace, who some of you guys got to meet, she came out here in May with me when I, when I moved a bunch of my stuff out here. She's probably my closest sibling. I have a great relationship with her. We've always been so close. But part of our relationship has always been me messing with her, me giving her different competitions or games per se. I remember one time specifically we were sitting outside of a, of a Shopco in Billings, Montana. And we were after Shopco, we were gonna go to Shields, this, this sporting goods store. And in the Shields, there's a Ferris wheel. And for one dollar, you can get a token and you get to ride this Ferris wheel. Well, my sister at the time was probably like eight, and I was probably like 13, maybe 15, I don't remember the age yet. But she's sitting there, she's like, I just want to go on the Ferris wheel when we get there. But my parents don't like to spend money. They're very, they're very like um, uh, stingy with their money. They don't give it out. You know, we don't do those kinds of things. So there's no chance. But I had a dollar in my wallet. And I said, Grace, if you go outside and you eat that (laughs) flower, I will give you a dollar to ride on the Ferris wheel. So Grace goes outside, and she picks off this white flower that Shopko is selling, I know, bad. And she eats it. She eats this. And me, being the loving brother that I am, I Google poisonous white flowers on my phone, and I show her a picture, and I said, oh no, Grace, that was poisonous. You're going to die. My parents come back to the vehicle, because they were just in Chaco for a quick second. My parents come back to the vehicle to my sister bawling her eyes out, <laughs> thinking that she is going to die for the cost of one Ferris wheel ride. It's a funny story, but the reality is is that Jesus tells us that if our left hand is causing a sin or our right hand is causing a sin, cut it off. Sin will lead to death. The pleasures of this world will lead to death. Jesus literally asked the question in in Matthew. That what does it matter if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Our souls are so important to us. But the quality and the condition of our soul is shown in how we spend our time. It's shown in how we spend our money. It's shown in what we talk about and what we prioritize in life. You know, if anybody, any one of you are on social media, myself, I am, and I'm on Facebook, and I cannot get on Facebook, despite the fact that most of my friends on Facebook are believers, or at least professing believers, I cannot get on Facebook without being bombarded with Politics, with COVID, everyone has an opinion, and everybody's posting about it. Where's the gospel? Since when did did who's in office become more important than who's on the throne? Since when did, did the government mandating a vaccine or mandating masks become more important than sharing the good news with those around us? But the fact of the matter is, is that by us continually talking about politics and giving our money to politics and talking about COVID and giving it all of our time and our energy reveals to us that those things are more important to us than the gospel. And that we don't desire God, but we desire the things of this earth. Even though this is fleeting and it's passing away, and whether everybody dies of COVID from the vaccine or because they didn't get the vaccine, it doesn't matter. Because what matters is our relationship with Christ, and we forego that. We don't make time for Jesus. People who aren't morning people will tell you that they cannot get up in the morning to read scripture before work or before school. Yet I guarantee you at some point in time in their life, and maybe they're currently doing it, they have gotten up early to work out. We've all been there. They've gotten up early to go hunting. They've gotten up early to go to some sort of sports practice. They've gotten up early to do something that they want to do. But not for the word of God. You know what that tells us and that shows us? Is that we value our physical health and life more than we value our spiritual life. William Greenhill writes that we give all diligence in other things, yet little pain is taken about the soul. What does such misplaced concern suggest but that you love the world? You see, we must have even more diligence in the matters of the soul than in the matters of this current life. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.10, he says, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. And in Philippians 2.12, Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is a lifelong pursuit. Brethren in the congregation, make certain, be diligent to make certain of God's calling and choosing of you. Brethren, sitting here today, let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Standing before God in in holy and reverent awe and wonder of his beauty and glory and strength, can we honestly and truthfully say that we are being diligent to make certain that we are of the people of God? Can we truthfully say that? You see, merely praying prayers of mercy and going through the Christian motions is not going to save you or assure you of such salvation. But as Greenhill writes again, there must be praying, struggling, crying, and wrestling with God. One must search Scripture and apply its truths to his own heart. Are we as a Christian people continually wrestling with hard truths? Are we continually challenging us in the Word? Do we get beat up and, and worn out over our sin? Do we mourn our sin? Do we often feel like Paul in Romans 7? We're like, man, the things that I desire to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. Do we have that dichotomy going on within our, in ourselves? Do we struggle that way? Do we wrestle with the truths of God? Are we diligently studying His Word and trying to be in prayer endlessly? Or do we just glide and coast through the Christian life? Am I content with little when it comes to matters of the soul? Am I content with just being fed the Word on Sunday mornings? Am I content with not growing in further knowledge of God? Am I content with the very little that I actually seek first His kingdom? C.S. Lewis writes, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, one of the greatest vacations that I've ever been on is a cruise, a holiday at sea. Seven or eight or ten days, however long you go, of endless fun and endless food. It is so joyous. And and the illustration that Lewis gives is like if my parents came up to me. Or if I I said to you this morning, you guys can go on a cruise fully paid for by me. And your response is, no, I think I'm going to go hang out in the sandbox out back. That sounds better. That is like us pursuing the things of the world and being satisfied with the little we know of God rather than resting in the fullness of the splendor and glory of our great God. C.S. Lewis says, infinite joy is offered to us. But there are so many around us, among us, suffer anxiety, that suffer depression, that simply have no joy in their lives. Yet infinite joy is right there waiting for us. It's found in Christ, and we should desire that. You see, more than likely, the reason that all of us fall way short in the matters of the soul is because we don't believe God, or we cannot imagine how good He actually is when we read verses like Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. If we really believed that, that there were pleasures forever, and that in the presence of God there is fullness of joy, we would have no problem praying or reading the word. We would have a problem ceasing to do so. Hear that again. If we really believed that in the presence of God there was the fullness of joy and that in his right hand there were pleasures forevermore, we would not have a problem getting in the word. We wouldn't have a problem praying. We would have a problem ceasing to do so. Because the most joyful thing that we could do on this earth is spending time with the Lord. In fact, if we really believed it, we would desire this for everyone. We would be hungry for our own soul, and we would be hungry for others as well. Do we care about our own spiritual well-being? Do we care about other people's spiritual well-being? You see, Vinny came up to me the other day after school. And he said to me, Christian, I almost saved someone's life today. And I immediately imagined, I immediately imagined, what is Vinny going to tell me? He's you know, like, kid was almost going to fall off the slide and he was there to catch him? Like a kid was bleeding out in the hallway and he got a band-aid? Like, what is Vinny going to say to me? So I asked Vinny, how? And he says, I was sharing the gospel with this kid for like 10 minutes, but he didn't care, so I finally... Had to stop. You see, as cute as that story is, it's a reality check for all of us. At the end of the day, what matters is your soul's condition, not your physical health. And therefore our minds need to be set upon the things of the Spirit. We need to desire God. If not, we are like the people that Asaph describes whose end is is destruction. You see, back in Psalm chapter 73, in verses 16 through 18, Asaph ponders this thought and then comes to a conclusion. And he says in verse 16, when I pondered to understand this, how the, 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 how the wicked and the arrogant, how they are so successful and pro- prosperous, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome, troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. If we are seeking the things of the world and are not caring for our soul, if we are not desiring God, we are like these people that Asaph realizes are heading for destruction. Therefore, we must know that we can only truly desire God if God creates in us a new heart, and gives us new desires. What if we believe that we have been made new, but we recognize that we don't desire God as we should? That's probably every single one of us. Piper says, confess the sin of joylessness in him and pray earnestly that God would restore it to you. Not that God would create it in you, because if you truly have been born again, then the Spirit of God is in you, and if the Spirit of God is in you, then the Spirit of God wants God, and the Spirit of God is going to get God, So not that he would create it in you, but that it would be restored. Because I am certain that every true convert in this room has at some point, probably at their conversion at the minimum, desired God so much that their zeal for him was all they could talk about. As from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And all they did was done under the compulsion they felt for the gospel. It was that way for me. I remember vividly on spring break at my time at Bible school this, this mind-blowing thing that occurred, we went on spring break, and we had this thing called temple tours, and we just visited various religions. We went to a Buddhist temple, we went to Muslims, we talked to Jehovah Witnesses, we just learned about their religion. And during this trip, though, we went to a San Antonio Spurs Warriors game. We were going to go to a San Antonio Spurs Hawks game, until I said, whoa, 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 the Warriors play on Thursday night, let's go to that game. Because I wanted to see Steph Curry. And for none of you guys, for, if you're not a sports fan, Steph Curry at this time, three years ago, was the face of the league. As much as I'm a LeBron guy, Steph Curry was dominant. Everybody wanted to watch Steph Curry play. And so I was like, let's go to the Warriors League. At some point in time, I, I'm, I'm sitting on the way end of our, of our student group. I'm sitting on the very end, and I'm sitting next to this man who is Jewish. Not practicing, but he's Jewish. And I'm just found myself in conversation with him. So that the entire game I was engaged in conversation with this man. I watched maybe 30 seconds of the Warriors game. And you know what happened? Steph Curry hit a full court buzzer beater before halftime, and I missed it. (laughs) Because I was talking to this man about God. I kid you not. That was the most humbling and sobering time, one of the most humbling and sobering times in my life because it was at that moment that I recognized that I loved God more than I loved sports. And in times past, I don't know if I could honestly say that. In that same zeal that I had, I treated, I used to fly a lot going back from Texas to Montana, Texas to Montana, I would fly all the time, seeing family and whatnot. And I treated my airplane rides as I have whoever's sitting next to me captive for however long this flight is, and I am going to share the gospel with that person. I kid you not, I probably have three phone numbers in my phone from people that I have just met on the airplane that we talked scripture with, that we talked about the things of the Lord with. But as it has with me and as it has with all of us, that zeal gets tempered. But I'm saying right now in this place in life, let us all cry out to God to renew our desire for him. This means that we adopt true contentment in everything in life. See, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6-8, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Because 1 Timothy 6.17 tells us that God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. This echoes the same cry that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 when he's talking about how he provides for the birds and the bugs and the grass and how much more so than would he provide for us, which is why he tells us in verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Want to know the crazy reality of these verses They don't mean that if you have enough faith that you'll never go without food or covering. Because your contentment isn't in those earthly things. But as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, he went days without food. Days on the run, sleepless nights. So the point of these verses is the secret that Paul writes about in Philippians 4, that our contentment comes from God and through his strength as he supplies all of our needs in Jesus if we truly desire God, we will be content whether we have lots, little, or none. Because our prize is not this earth, but it is Jesus. If tomorrow someone stole your car and insurance wouldn't help you out, could you still praise God? If your house burned in a fire and you lost all your possessions, could you still praise God? If you get diagnosed with cancer tomorrow, could you still Praise God. If your spouse or your child or children die tomorrow, could you still praise God? You see, Job did. In fact, after essentially losing everything that I just listed, it tells us in Job that Job fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord forever. Even after such great loss, his response is worship because his desire was found in God, not in the things of this earth. Did you know that we have sung these lyrics two times in the last month from my favorite song, Though You Slay Me? Though you slay me, talking about God, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin Still I will worship, sing a song to the one who's all I need. When God is whom and what we desire, it does not matter what happens in life. We will never cease to give him praise. As the song continues, though tonight I'm crying out, let this cup pass from me now. Let this affliction pass from me now. You're still all that I need. You're enough for me. You're enough for me. The God whom we serve truly is all that we need. He provides us with a peace that surpasses all understanding, unceasing joy and rest despite trial and tribulation, and pleasure forever in him, both here and in eternity. Thus, let us, as the psalmist writes, truly say, believe, and live out the truth that God is all that we desire. Father God, thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Thank you so much lord for allowing us to gather here today in your name lord i pray that we are encouraged leaving here today lord i pray that we are hungering and thirsting for more of you lord that we are striving for more of you lord that that we would unceasingly seek after you and your kingdom and your righteousness and your word and and just your son lord that we would continually be blown away by your glory And, Lord, that we continually be reproved and rebuked by your word, but, Lord, in your mercy so that it draws us nearer to you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for who you are and what you have done. Lord, thank you for your son and thank you for this life that we now get to live in him and through him and for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.